After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Writer and theatre maker Stella Duffy has become one of the most versatile artists of her generation, at home either on the stage or as a novelist. Born in London, she spent her childhood in New Zealand before returning to the UK where she established the Fun Palaces campaign, an annual, free, nationwide celebration of culture at the heart of the community, using arts, science, craft, tech, digital, heritage and sports activities as a catalyst for community engagement. Beyond this, Stella has written a total of 16 novels to date, which include The Room of Lost Things, The Hidden Room and Calendar Girl. I got up with Stella at the Isle of Wight Literary Festival to talk theatre, books and her hopes for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Stella Duffy. Um, let's go back to the very beginning. You were born in London, but moved to New Zealand when you were five. How did an English upbringing compare to the New Zealand way of life? Oh, good question. Okay, so my family, of, well, I was born in a council estate in South East London, and I'm the youngest of seven kids, and um, standard kind of South East London white working class family. Um, being white working class in my timber town in New Zealand was very different. It meant that I had access to a lot more stuff than I would have in Woolwich. Um, while being in South London meant that there was lots of city things that my siblings had access to. Lots of art and culture stuff that I certainly didn't in Tokoroa, where I grew up, which was three hours from the closest museum or gallery. But I grew up with... There was 26 languages in my primary school. And there were Maori kids and Samoan kids and Nguyen kids and Tongan kids and Fijian kids and Scottish kids and Irish kids and Welsh kids speaking Welsh as their first language. And every, Dutch kids, French, Swiss, everybody had come to my town to work like my mum and dad did in the mill. And so actually, I grew up multicultural before it was trendy. And I grew up multicultural in New Zealand which is in a way bicultural, really, because the Māori people were the first people there and then the white people came. But my town was multicultural because there was lots of other Pacific Islanders and lots of other Pākehā white people. Pākehā is Māori for white. So I probably would have had a traditional white working-class upbringing in South East London. What I got was a working-class, mixed, multicultural upbringing where I grew up in New Zealand. And that's not true of every New Zealand kid, because there's lots of New Zealand kids who don't have that mixed a town to grow up in, as I did. But I'm really glad that that's what we got, and I'm really fortunate for it, because it wasn't easy. It was a very poor town, and um, my dad did shift work, and it, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. He was a great man, brilliant man, and violent. And great man, brilliant man, and violent. Both of those things can be together. People often talk about them like one or the other cancels the other out. So it wasn't easy, but I think what we got as a benefit from being where I grew up in New Zealand was knowing that there are so many other amazing cultures that I could grow up with. 
And actually, in terms of disability, my school, because there wasn't a place to put disabled kids somewhere else and put them on a bus somewhere else, I grew up with kids with cerebral palsy, with spina bifida, kids with learning difficulties and emotional difficulties, because there wasn't somewhere else to send them and physical difficulties. So that I just think we had a more integrated upbringing than I would ever have had had we stayed in London. It's a really long answer, sorry. That's perfect. <laughs> so... Um, Back to the UK. Yep. And obviously it's now modern day. Tell us about the Fun Palace initiative. Okay. And how is that benefit, benefiting the community? Sure. So um, Fun Palaces is a thing that I co-founded five years ago with my colleagues. There's only three of us running Fun Palaces with two days a week. Um, but last weekend, 433 communities across the UK, there were 384 in the UK and the other uh, 50-60-odd were in... Norway, Australia, New Zealand, and Indiana, USA. Fun, a fun palace is led by the community for the community. So instead of, this is, so what happens quite a lot with cultural initiatives is we fly in the symphony orchestra to a place that's got nothing, like my small town in New Zealand. Or we take the famous author, hello, I'm Stella Duffy, I'm from South London, I've come to the Isle of Wight. And those, those things are great. But actually what that does, if we only look at that, is we don't look at what amazing stuff there is in every community. So Fun Palaces says, yeah, do that the rest of the year, that's fine. But on Fun Palaces weekend, which is the first weekend in October, we suggest that people pay attention to who they've got in their own community. So their own other skills, their own things that they're interested in, their own, you know, the person who maybe teaches tap dancing part-time or the person who has a telescope and could say, yeah, it's a good night, let's get out and look at the stars and I'll show you something about the moon that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. So we're really interested in supporting people to share their skills, but it doesn't matter how, what higher level those skills are. If, if they're brilliant at it, if they're the world's best at it, great. If they're someone who learned it last week, but they're willing to share it, great. So we're about supporting people to step up in their own community. And quite often the communities who join in with us don't have much. So we print posters for people. We do national press for people. We support them to do local press. A lot of them are people who are trying to create an event for the first time ever. And they use us as their practice because we can give them a lot of support. We have a great toolkit. Um, and doing it once a year means that the big shiny buildings, so like Sadler's Wells, made a fun palace with a whole bunch of local people. But I was at an estate in Cornwall in Penzance, and they made a fun palace, but they're all in it together. And that's a really exciting thing, where instead of always going, well, this is one level of cultural engagement, this is another, we're bringing it all together. We're bringing arts and sciences together. We're really interested in podcasts and digital and tech and people learning these skills to share with each other. So fun palaces is just a way to say, we really do, this is Joan Littlewood's phrase, believe in the genius in everyone, and that everyone has something to contribute. But we it's no good just saying people have something to contribute. We have to support people to contribute, because otherwise they can't. You mentioned Joan Littlewood. Mm -hmm. What sort of inspiration was she on female performers? Yeah. Um, so when I started Fun Palaces in 2013 was when I first suggested we do something, because it was going to be for her centenary in 2014 on the 6th of October. I genuinely didn't know that all these places would want to join in. And I'd never produced a thing in my life. And I totally didn't expect it to take off like this or take up so much of my life. But of course, I love that it has. And I'm very proud of it. Um, 
What happened immediately was that a lot of really brilliant women directors and women who were running buildings put up their hands and said, we'd love to make a fun palace too because Joan is the only woman director who I knew of when I was coming up. So Jude Kelly, who's been running the South Bank Centre for ages now, um, Gemma Bodinay, who is the artistic director of the Liverpool Everyman. Yes, Liverpool Everyman. Sarah Frankham, who's the artistic director of the Manchester Royal Exchange. Who else? I mean, a load of other women, all around my age, said, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Oh, Erica Wyman, the deputy artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, who at the time was at um, Northern Stage in Newcastle. A load of these women my age but younger maybe, said they wouldn't have been doing what they were doing if they didn't know Joan Little would have come before. Because we still have so few women running the arts. We still have so few women running anything, running, running you know, major CEOs, running banking, running digital, running anything. But it's really important for them to look to somebody as having been there. And the other thing about Joan is she worked with everybody. She worked with community groups. She worked with, you know, groups of minors when she was in Middlesbrough. She worked with people who weren't trained actors. And in fact, some of our most successful actors, Harry H. Corbett, who went on to be in Steptoe and Son, Barbara Windsor, you know, came up through her. They, they got started through her. So she wasn't, even though she went to RADA, and she was, she was a pr professional, in inverted commas, actor herself, she was much more interested in working with a much wider range of people. And for me, that's what it's all about. I'm, I'm not really interested in art for art's sake. I'm interested in art for our sake. I'm interested in what good is art for people and what can it do for people. Excellent. And you've also been a member of the comedy improvisation company Spontaneous Combustion. Yes. Uh, since about 1988? Yeah, we did our first gigs in 1988, and um, I still am. I mean, I, we didn't ever disband, so officially we're still a company. In two, three weeks' time, I'm doing an impro gig with three or four of the people from that company. I still work every now and then with them. Improvising taught me how to write. I came to writing... I, didn't, I thought posh people were writers. I thought... You know, you only got your name on the spine of a book if you were really clever and you, you know, had done a degree. And in fact, when I went to university, there wasn't creative writing degrees, but you know what I mean. And I, I thought that you, and I didn't even know, what, I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know any of those things. And actually, the internet has in some ways made those things easier for people. At least if they know where to look, they can begin to find out a lot more information. Back in the early 90s, when I was starting, there was nowhere to find that information. Um, so, but we, for five years, Spontaneous Combustion, we improvised a play every Sunday night. First of all at the Banana Cabaret in Ballon, and then at Bassey Arts Centre in Bassey in South London. And that taught me, and it taught a lot of us, all of us have ended up being writers, how to write. Jake Arnott, the novelist, was in that company in the beginning. Patrick Marber, the, the, the writer, and at the East have done quite a bit of directing as well. You know, Patrick was in that company in the beginning. We taught ourselves how to write by writing live on stage. And that's what improvising is. Improvising is live writing, writing is improvising sitting down. And then with, with writing, you just make it better with second and third drafts. Yeah. So, uh, 16 novels in under 25 years. <laughs> it's no easy feat. How have you developed such writing stamina? Um, I like telling stories, and I like, I, I like the fact that there's a whole thing I can create. So as I came to this from, from acting, as a performer, you have to wait for someone to give you a job. 
You have to wait for someone to give you a job that someone else has written. You have to want someone... Someone needs to like you enough to employ you or get you to make work. As a writer, whether you sell it or not, you can create. And that's amazing. And actually, writing is one of the cheapest forms of creating. You know, you, you don't need to record anything. Paper and pen are cheap. And sometimes people say, I, I want to create, but I don't have a camera. Or I want to create, but I can't afford the paints. And I say, well, write. You might not be brilliant at it, but write. I wasn't brilliant when I started either, but it's really cheap. And I had you no, know, I was still cleaning houses for rich people when I started writing. I was I paid to go to university by cleaning houses for rich people. And believe you me, cleaning houses for rich people gives you lots of good stories because you're tidying up their bloody mess. Um, and you're looking in people's cupboards and putting things away for them. I mean, you get to know a load of stuff. But I haven't used their stories, but you know, you get an insight into different lives. So actually, for somebody who didn't have a lot of financial, well, any financial backing, for me, writing is a really good way to create. And I can do that on a train or a bus. I was working on the train on the way down here. I'll go back to my hotel room tonight and I'll probably do a bit of writing. Because once I have a story going, I just want to keep going till I've finished it and then make it better. And so it doesn't feel prolific to me. It doesn't feel like it's, like I've, I think I've worked hard at it. But I don't think it's hard work. My dad was a labourer and he left school at 14 and he started working then and he died at 67. He, he did hard work. He was a boilerman, you know. When the, when the boiler broke down in the mill, they climbed into these massive boilers and to fix them. And he, when he died in his coffin, his hands were smooth. You know when you burn, you, you get a sort of smooth bit? His hands were smooth because he'd been covered in so many burns all of his life. Well, that's hard work. So I never call writing hard work. I'm bloody lucky, but I do work hard at it. And that's the distinction, really. I like it. I'm lucky. It's fortunate. And I do not like writing. And I don't understand people who say, oh, I love writing. I bloody don't. I love having written. <laughs> that feels great. He knows all about that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, so what's still the thrill for, of writing for you then? Um, when something surprises me. And um, so with the last two books, Money in the Morgue, which is the Noah Marsh one, and um, The Hidden Room, there are things in both of those books that I totally didn't expect to happen that happened. I love that. Um, occasionally writing a sentence that I think is good. I mean, really occasionally. This doesn't happen to me very often. I, I tend to get things better in an edit, and then I get to a stage of going, look, this is the best I can make it. And now I have to let it go, and I'll give it to my editor, and they'll help me. And then I then we'll have to let it go, and it'll be published. Um, I like that part of it. I like the feeling. So at the moment, I have a short story I have to finish by the end of October for an anthology, and I can feel it bubbling up. I can feel it coming. And I sort of I now know the beginning and the end. And I don't really know what's going to happen in the middle. But as soon as I get a character solid, I'll be able to start it. I like that feeling. In fact, for the purposes of the podcast, I'm holding my hands in the air as if I'm holding a ball or a balloon or something that moves. Not a kitten. Something liquid. <laughs> no, it's sort of mercurial. And it, it's a thing that I don't know what it is yet, but it will come into form as I write it. I love that about writing. I like that it becomes itself when we do it, in the process of doing it. 
looking back at your career, what would you say your proudest achievement is? Oh, God. Oh, oh you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Seriously. I never think about that. Um, okay. It's, I, it is I, important though, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's lovely. I am really proud of Fun Palaces because, and that's not just me, that's all, the, I mean, that's literally the 150,000 people who took part this year and everyone who put their hand up to go, I'll make a fun palace, you know, with no skills, no, I've produced a dozen things before, complete strangers going, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'm really proud that we are giving people an opportunity to create in their own communities. I'm really proud of that. In terms of my writing work, I'm very proud of a novel called London Lies Beneath, which I do believe is, at the moment, it's my best novel. And it's not that my last two aren't good. Um, they're absolutely good novels, and I'm really proud of them. But London Lies Beneath has something special, and it took me four years, and I was very ill during the writing of it, and I created Fun Palace during the writing of it. And I'm very proud of that coming together. And I think, I think there's something in that book that is precious. And in terms of my theatre work, I do a show with a company called Improbable, I've done on it, but we started doing in 1998, and it's called Life Game. And we interview somebody live on stage about their life. And we just ask them to tell us little bits about what happened in their life. And, um, and it's not about tell me your best moment or your biggest moment or your worst moment. It's, we could do this now. A moment where you had, you just felt like, oh, that was a good day. Not even necessarily the best ever day, but just, yeah, that was a good day. Is there a moment that you know? When, when I When you finished university, yeah. there was a big party. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So, what we would do for that scene is that you would have picked one of the actors to play you and we would have you sitting because we didn't have wheelchairs or anything like that. We, had, we, we did have, um, we've, it's had performers um, with different abilities, physical abilities, not so much, but certainly different abilities around performing. We've interviewed people with all sorts of abilities. So we would have a chair, we'd bring you in and you would tell us what the other people in the room were like at that party. And we would get you, so the other nine actors maybe, would stand up and you'd say, yeah, that was, that was my best mate. He or she was like this. And that was my dad and he was like that. And this is, this is, this is you know, maybe one of my lecturers came. You'd tell us who was at the party. And we wouldn't necessarily perform it. We'd just see you. And the audience, this is, this is the key to this show, the audience aren't really looking at us performing. They're looking at you, looking at yourself because we hardly ever see ourselves reflected back in our lives, right? And the minute you begin to see some physicality that's like a great moment of your own, that's when it really gets in. And the other thing is that the audience aren't even looking at yours. They're thinking of theirs. Mm. They're beginning to think of, yeah, I had a party like that once, or I achieved a thing that was hard for me for this reason, that reason, that reason, and this is what I did at the end of it, right? And that way, we get what theatre is supposed to do all the time, which is uniting people. And that's really cool. I love that show. That show changed how I write. That show taught me you don't have to write incidents all the time. But small moments, the character not in the middle of the party, but the character getting ready for the people to arrive, 
mm. or the character standing over here while watching the other people at the party, those moments are just as good as scenes in a book because we've all felt them. It's a great show. Great show. So what's next for Stella Duffy? Ah, well, I'm writing a new novel. It's called Lullaby Beach at the moment. Um, and it will come out with Virago in probably, assuming I get it done next year, 2020. Then there's another novel for Virago, but also HarperCollins are interested in another Naya Marsh novel. So it depends. Not sure which one I'll do. Um, Fun Palace is next year. It's on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. And we're getting ready for that now because we're only a tiny team. And we intend to stay a tiny team. That, that way we can keep putting the emphasis on the community. And I'm 55 and my wife's 59. And we're beginning to think, not retire because we can't afford to because we don't have pensions because we're both freelance. She's a playwright. We've always been freelance. But we're beginning to look at our lives and go, as I said, I've had cancer twice. I, I want to work out how to, how to have some time off sometimes. And I'm really shit at it. But I want to work out what I do when I'm not doing. And I'm not good at not doing. But I'm quite keen to practice not doing and see what comes out of it. That's what's next. Not doing. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.